In just a few moments, I'll bring a message from part of this, so I'd like for you to keep your Bible open there. Hear God's word. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds and 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together as I lead us. Our Father, your scripture says that while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, that you sent Christ to be our Redeemer. We recognize that we are born far away from you. We are born far off. We are born spiritually dead. And we have each rebelled against you. We have gone our own way. And yet you sent your Son, who was born of a virgin, who lived a holy, perfect, obedient life to you, and then died a substitutionary, sacrificial death on that Roman cross. Thank you that you put the sins of your people on him and punished those sins on him in our place. And thank you that he died the full penalty, paid the full price of sin. And he was separated from you, not only physical death, but spiritual death. And thank you that we can celebrate his resurrection and his ascension to your right hand, where this very moment he intercedes for us. We pray that our hearts and lives would be committed to you, that we gather here to celebrate the death of Christ as a sacrifice, not as an accident that happened, not just as a political um, execution, but as a fulfillment of your prophecy going all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis, that you would send one to be a redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us for a few moments to think about the burial of Jesus, primarily from verses 38 and following. I've never heard a message on this. Perhaps you have. And so this week was my first time really to study this passage and why Jesus had to be buried. And my goal 
is that when we leave here today, you will have a greater appreciation and a greater understanding and a greater humility why Jesus' body had to be buried in the way it was handled. When I was in the fifth grade or so, I had my first close relative die. It was my grandfather. And I loved my grandfather, J.D. Miller, and I adored him. And so the very thought of attending a funeral terrified me. I had never been to a funeral. Uh, My parents and grandparents were of the generation where uh, when we would gather and eat Sunday lunch, they would end up talking about burial plots. Who had purchased a plot where and uh, I, it it just was a mystery I cared not to involve myself in. And so I was uh, very uncomfortable with this whole thing. My mother required me to get all dressed up in a coat and tie for a little elementary age boy and prepare to go to the funeral. I could not go. Finally, I said, there's no way I can go to this. And my parents conceded and let me wait at the house during the funeral service. Now, one of the affirmations that Christians uh, almost since the early centuries have affirmed is the Apostles' Creed. Um, And in the Apostles' Creed, which is affirmed by many, many different churches around the world and different denominations, one of the things that we affirm, among others, is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, we recognize the importance that Jesus was crucified and that he really died, but why would we affirm his burial? Have you ever thought about it? Why is that important? And I learned recently, especially from R.C. Sproul's commentary on John's Gospel, that it's very important for such reasons as the burial of Jesus was an important part of his mission. Now that probably sounds odd to you and to me. I mean, if a person came up to you who had no background of the Christian faith, had never been around church or read the Bible, and said, tell me about this Jesus, tell me what he did? What was his mission? Why did he come to earth? I think pretty much any Christian would say, well, it was important that he became a man, what we call his incarnation. It was important that he lived an earthly life and he obeyed God in every respect. It was important that he die and that he was raised from the dead and that he ascended to glory at the right hand of the Father. Now, all of those make sense to Christians. But we normally overlook his burial as being just kind of an insignificant detail that's thrown into the story. And yet, it was not insignificant. It was very, very important. In fact, 700 years before Jesus became a man, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 prophesied about it. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, after he's listed all these kind of negative things that would happen to the Redeemer, the Messiah. He says, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That was a prophecy of Isaiah. He was prophesying of the circumstances which surrounded the life and death of the Messiah. And there's a remarkable change that takes place there. He says that he will be counted in his death with the wicked 
but with a rich man also. So there's a transition. So for the next few moments, I want to try and answer three questions from Scripture. One, why was Jesus buried? Second, where did he go during those three days? And third, what does the Bible mean when it says that during that time he preached to the spirits in prison? Okay, why was he buried? It's important to know that Jesus' burial was very different from that of most prisoners who were executed by the Romans. When a Jewish person was executed, meaning they had been charged with, with crimes, then that person's family, if there was a family, had the right to request the body. The body could not be buried inside of the city of Jerusalem since that was seen as bringing defilement on the sacred places. But the family could say that he had received a proper burial elsewhere. But a body that went unclaimed was taken and thrown on a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And on this garbage dump, there was trash from the city in a fire that burned day and night. And that garbage dump right outside of Jerusalem was called Gehenna. And Gehenna became the metaphor for hell, where the flames of divine wrath never go out. However, when someone was executed for sedition, for an uprising, a crime against the government, as was Jesus, that body was usually left on the cross, often for days, until the vultures finished it off. But that doesn't happen with Jesus. And John writes, as we read in verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and take away the body. So here's this man, Joseph of Arimathea. From all indication, he had significant status. He had wealth. He was probably a member of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. He was a believer in Jesus, John tells us, but he was not vocal about it. So he would have been in that group that John had talked about in chapter 12 where many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Uh, Joseph apparently was in this group. Um, but what he shows here, I believe, is faith in coming and asking for the body. He goes to Pilate. He's not a relative of Jesus. And he requests to be given the permission to take care of the body of Christ in an appropriate manner. And so Pilate allows him to do it. We can only guess at the reasons why. Maybe it was to infuriate the Jews all the more. Perhaps he felt some degree of remorse. He himself had said, I find nothing in this man for, that warrants execution. So he gives Joseph approval to take the body of Jesus. And then John, as we read in verse 39, mentions Nicodemus, that Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, back in chapter 3 of John, he comes bringing this huge amount of myrrh and aloes. And now here's another member of the Sanhedrin. This is Nicodemus. And he comes with Joseph to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus apparently was one of those rulers also who had come to believe in Jesus and was a follower of him, but had remained rather quiet about it. But now he, along with Joseph, are willing publicly to stand, you might say, with an act of respect for Jesus. 
Why did he bring the fragrances that it mentions, these 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes? Well, the Jews did not embalm their dead as the Egyptians did. Instead, they wrapped them in a shroud of linen. Then they covered the linen with precious ointments and fragrances for the simple purpose of disguising the stench of decomposition. That's why they did. Now, with this extraordinary amount of fragrances, Nicodemus comes and he helps prepare Jesus' body for burial. And then John continues in verses 41 and 42, and he mentions the tomb. Now, in the place, it says here in the passage where he was crucified, there was a garden. So right near the place of crucifixion, there's this garden, and there was a new tomb that had never been used. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus' body had to be buried quickly because the high Sabbath was right at hand. Now, providentially, there is this new, unused tomb in a garden near to Golgotha where he had been crucified, and which the other Gospels tell us was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. So Jesus is laid there in this brand new tomb owned by a very wealthy man, a tomb that obviously had been prepared for Joseph's own burial, the man who owned it. And so from what we know, it's highly unlikely that Jesus' own family could have provided such a burial. Now this is not only the fulfillment of prophecy, it is the beginning of the transition from what we call Jesus' humiliation on the cross to his exaltation at the resurrection. So I want you to see, I want you to have seen, that his burial is a fulfillment of prophecy rather than his body being left there on the cross. Second question. First was, why was Jesus buried? Second, where did he go during this three-day period? Now, there's been great debate throughout the church history as to what happened to Jesus between his death on the cross and his resurrection. Where was he? We know his body was in Joseph's tomb, but where was his soul? Many in the church history believe that between his death and resurrection, Jesus visited hell. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, as I referred to earlier, states that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. Now, why would Jesus have gone to hell during the time he was in the grave? Well, one theory, and it is a theory, was that he did so in order to pay fully for our sins, that he had to experience some time in hell as part of his atoning work for his people. Now, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, historically the Roman Catholic Church has a different view. They believe that Jesus went to hell to release captives who had been held in limbo since Old Testament times. And they understand, or it's taught, that he went there not to be punished, not to punish, but to continue his work of redemption and to set free the captives in hell from their condition. And the text that is most frequently used to support this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there because we have limited time, but listen closely as I read it. 1 Peter 3, 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of Noah, and so on. Now, many Bible commentators understand that term, the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits in prison? They understand them to be Old Testament believers who are still being held, waiting for the day of rescue. And that the prison, where it says these spirits in prison, they believe that the the prison is assumed to be hell. Now, Reformed roots, going back to John Calvin, have a very different view. Calvin believed that Jesus did not, well, that he did descend into hell and thought that Christians should recite that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, but he believed the wording should be changed to say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, descended into hell, dead and buried, rather than crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell. Now here's why. It was Calvin's view that Jesus' experience of hell took place as he was on the cross. And that's what the atonement is all about. That he received on the cross the full punishment for sin. He endured the wrath of God as it is experienced by those in hell. Does that make sense? Are you all with me? I'm sorry. I've, I've got limited time, so I'm not going to, to repeat. Now, where then was the living soul of Jesus? After he died on the cross, where was his soul slash spirit, what we call I think the Bible teaches it was in heaven. I believe the Bible teaches he experienced hell on the cross, and when he died, his soul went to be with the Father in heaven. Why do I say that? How do we know that if we do? It's because of what he said to the thief on the cross, who made a profession of faith, and he says to him in Luke 23, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, some people read that and say, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be in paradise as though it's sometime in the future. My understanding, and I think, you know, it makes sense to me, and I think the Scripture is teaching that Jesus is saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. In fact, it really requires twisting the text to make it say otherwise. We also know that at the end of his experience on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we have every reason to believe that at the moment Jesus died, that his divine nature remained united with his soul, which was in heaven, and his and to his body, which was in the tomb, waiting to be reunited at the moment of resurrection. Third question, what does it mean then when it says he preached to the spirits in prison? If we consulted a dozen commentaries on the book of John by people that have spent many, many years studying it, we would get ten different answers to that question. It's not that we shouldn't try to arrive at an answer, but this is difficult, and it's not real clear. Chances are that we would get all these different opinions. I think that it says Peter writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, 
that if we apply basic rules of Bible interpretation, and that is, how are these phrases used at other places in the New Testament, we find that the phrase, he was made alive by the Spirit, also refers to his resurrection. So it makes sense to me that Jesus died bodily and then was made alive again by the Spirit speaking of the resurrection. But also he went and preached to the spirits in prison by the Spirit. Now what does that mean? When Peter says that, he's speaking of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison after he apparently speaks about the resurrection. So there's an order here. His death, then his resurrection, and then he preaches to the spirits in prison. So if we follow that, we could say that Jesus' visit to the spirits in prison took place not between his death and resurrection, but after his resurrection. But on the other hand... The fact that these events are mentioned in particular order does not necessarily mean that there's a temporal sequence. We have to be careful that we don't read a sequence into the passage that Peter didn't intend. Peter doesn't say after he was raised by the Spirit, then he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It simply says that it was made by the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead that he ministered to the spirits in prison. Now, a lot of people assume, listen, I, y'all may, if you, I don't know if you're interested in this. I'm asked about that phrase from the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. What does it mean he descended into hell? Whether you believe it or not, I'm trying to answer that. Now, whether you believe I'm trying, that's what I meant, not whether you believe that statement. Now, some people, when they read about preaching to the spirits in prison, they bring to the text the thought that spirits is referring to dead people. And prison refers to hell. That may be what Peter had in mind. On the other hand, sometimes the word spirit in the Bible is used to talk about living people. In Genesis 2, it says, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul, a spirit. And he's talking about he's alive. So spirit is not just used of, of dead people. So the fact that Peter refers to spirits does not necessarily mean that he's talking of departed spirits or the deceased. What about the prison? It is possible that Peter was referring to hell, but on the other hand, the condition of the nation of Israel during Jesus' ministry was one of bondage to sin. And it was the mission of the Messiah, we know from Isaiah 61, to proclaim liberty to the captives as he preached the gospel and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So there is Isaiah, 700 years before, prophesying about the Redeemer's ministry and referring to the people that would hear him as captives and who are in prison, so to speak. So Peter may be reminding us that the same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead accompanied his earthly ministry of releasing the captives from the prison house of sin. Now, in conclusion... It's just not clear. (laughs) But what is clear is what John is telling us here about the death and burial of Christ and the resurrection. And John says in the passage we read that he's written these things that, that we might believe, that we might believe in him. So it's clear that God 
uh, is willing, is not willing to allow the humiliation of his son to continue one second longer than was necessary for him to pay the debt of our sin. As soon as the debt was paid, it's almost, within almost no time, God has his body removed from that cross and placed in the tomb of a wealthy man. It's like the humiliation is over and now it's paving the way for the exaltation. His body was treated tenderly. It was given an honorable burial in a rich man's tomb that had never been used before. One of the commentaries I read said, This was like getting a burial with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery rather than being thrown into a garbage heap or left on the cross for vultures. You see now why his burial was important? Our Lord was exalted in the manner of his burial, but that was simply a hint of what was getting ready to happen. (laughs) Two days later. Three, as they counted, three days later. Acts chapter 2 said it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that's what Easter is all about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your infinite plan. We thank you for the burial of Jesus, that that he was not dead in spirit, but that he was in your presence, and that that body, even where sin had been paid for, was treated with respect in preparation of the exaltation through the resurrection and his ascension to you. And we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn number 254, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, 254.